Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. So welcome back. Um, we'll get started again with our Dharma talk. And the theme of this intensive, of course, is this wonderful verse, the hymn to the perfection of wisdom. So what I'd like to do is start by just reading the hymn to the perfection of wisdom. If you have a copy, you can, uh, you can read it along with me. Um, hymn to the perfection of wisdom. Homage to the perfection of wisdom, the lovely, the holy, the perfection of wisdom gives light. Unstained, the entire world cannot stain her. She is a source of light, and from everyone in the triple world, she removes darkness. Most excellent are her works. She brings light so that all fear and distress may be forsaken and disperses the gloom and darkness of delusion. She herself is an organ of vision. She has a clear knowledge of the own being of all dharmas, for she does not stray away from it. The perfection of wisdom of the Buddhas sets in motion the wheel of dharma. So uh, I had a question, which is whether, um, whether anyone is willing to share their <clears throat> Uh, their own personal definition of wisdom. What do you think wisdom is? So, let's see, this is all messed up here. <laughs> so if you have a thought about that, what, what does it mean to you? What does wisdom mean to you? Just uh, raise your hand. You can do this with the reactions down below or you can raise it like this, whatever you like. Okay, Maria. unmute ah there we go i unmuted you oh thank you yeah, <laughs> yeah i think my, my definition of wisdom has changed over the years and i think the more i do the practice i think wisdoms for me is always about having a space before anything you do respond to reply to before anything just have a breath and then there's wisdom in everything so have a little space mm. yeah yeah. Yeah, Darcy. Do I have to unmute you? So the first thing that came to my mind is like, what's the difference between wisdom and knowledge? Knowledge is like knowing something about a thing. Whereas wisdom is understanding how all the things relate to each other. That's interesting. How all things relate to each other. Hmm. Someone else has a... Oh, Claudine. Well, it's not far from what Maria said. 
only I would express it by wisdom is having a choice and it comes to having the space for, for choice and be able to consider things before jumping in them. Being able to consider things, be having a, so that little moment of space. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And this moment is choice for me. Mm -hmm. Kim? There you go. Um, a photographer talked about the, the difference between looking at a scene, and it seems that that uh, wisdom is about seeing, and he, he defined looking as kind of orienting yourself, just just like enough so you don't bump into things, but really getting a hang of what's going on. And it, it relates to what you were talking about with Richie, for me, about the big picture as opposed to this tunnel vision where you're just not seeing the whole thing. And, and, um, and what's kind of funny is, um, this is 50 something years ago, but my photo teacher said, so what's your, your goal for the semester to all of us? And I said, well, to be able to walk around without a camera and have that kind of turned on scene. Because <laughs> that seemed wasteful somehow to be, you know, having to put a camera around your neck and start taking pictures to kind of be aware of things. Yeah, to really see. Yeah, so so seeing uh, what the situation is. And we have so much um, blindness, I guess, right now with not being able to see. And, and uh, Linda and I were talking last night, I think, about how most people seeing is just kind of conditioned by what other people are seeing around them. We had a repairman come to the house yesterday and I was trying to talk him into uh, getting the vaccine. And our conversation, it was, you know, good to talk to someone like that who, you know, just, he said, I never had a, um, I haven't had a cold since I was 16. That was his reason, but. That's, to, that's good reasoning, yeah. Yeah, so, so uh, you know, he wasn't seeing the picture. Yeah, he wasn't seeing the picture. Yeah, anyway, <clears throat> that's my wisdom. But there's uh, obviously the, the, what we've been talking about all along is the two wisdoms, the wisdom and the wisdom beyond wisdom. And there seems to be a difference there. Mm, what would you think the difference is? Uh, well, certainly the big picture is in the wisdom beyond wisdom. Um, it's not being able to, uh, like what, uh, you know, I wrote about King Solomon. His was not, I don't think, wisdom beyond wisdom, you know, cutting the baby in half. It, uh, it goes so far beyond that. And my kind of, um, not that I have any better view, but I mean, mature view or whatever, but of enlightenment was, you know, initially wisdom, knowing the right solution to a problem. And it's not that. Well, that, that would be more like knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's so bigger. It's, it's the wisdom beyond wisdom. It's, it's, uh, 
think beyond beyond anything I can fathom. So Joan. Well, what I thought the difference between wisdom and wisdom beyond wisdom is wisdom is what the human normally has that sees everything through this lens and um, sees ego, sees this person, this being, what's occurring and, 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 and can still have some wisdom. But the wisdom beyond wisdom is when you see past this skin bag and that the connectedness of everything and how things co-arise and uh, are dependent. And that's what I feel the wisdom beyond wisdom is. Yes, Stephanie. I have to unmute you. Here we go. Um, for me, I think wisdom, and, and this is just my opinion, is based around the awareness that I can't see the big picture. I can't see all of it. And so knowing that I am unable to see all of it, that any decisions and choices I make are going to be fallible and that the, and having that awareness that they are going to affect things and people in ways that I cannot understand. Yeah, so knowing the limitations of your vision. Limitations, yeah. Yeah, yeah, a great, great point. <clears throat> I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, it's such a an interesting question, and I so I I was thinking when I started practicing Zen, I wanted to become enlightened, and was like Kim, you know, uh, like the marvelous stories of enlightened beings I had read about in Three Pillars of Zen. That was the first Zen book I encountered. But what would that mean beyond some blinding revelatory flash that would? make my confusing, stressful life completely clear and trouble-free forever. That was my sense of it, right? Um, and I expected in my own naive way that that same flash would magically endow me with boundless wisdom. And that wisdom would make me genuinely helpful to others instead of blundering about causing harm through my own ignorance, which seemed like I was mostly doing. So it was true. I was 17. And I was ignorant and inexperienced and without much guidance. And worse yet, I hadn't even realized the extent of my own ignorance. So Zen finally was going to fix my stupidity. That was my, sort of my hope anyway. Uh, and enlightenment would make me wise and leaping over the messy ugliness of coming to wisdom through distressing experiences or devastating mistakes and effort. Now I'm 72 years old. I've been practicing Zen for 55 years. I've also been engaged with life for 55 years in my work and my family, my community and my world. So any wisdom I'm able to offer now is the result of using my practice and Buddhist teachings to meet the circumstances and the people I've encountered along the way. 
So spiritual friendships and community have been absolutely essential as you've experienced, right? When we share inquiry or when we um, come together for depth and practice or whatever. Um, so this process is so satisfying and so illuminating, but of course I still confront my own ignorance and confusion, as Stephanie was saying, my own limitations as well. And I'm continuing to practice in hopes of deepening in wisdom. No big flash of revelation, just this steadfast, ordinary, everyday practice under all conditions. It's my way. So a little practice background on this particular verse, the hymn to the perfection of wisdom. This verse was not used in Joko's services uh, in my first community of practice. I first encountered it when I started practicing at Austin Zen Center, where it was always chanted before the Heart Sutra. So in those days, I didn't think much about it. I was still quite loyal to Joko and her simple spare practice with little ceremony. Besides, it was so short. I just thought of it as kind of insignificant, a little intro to the Heart Sutra, but nothing more, nothing special itself. I chanted it along with everyone else. In the early days of ordinary mind, of course, we didn't chant the Heart Sutra, nor the hymn to the perfection of wisdom. We just used the four practice principles that begin caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. But over time, as I practiced at AZC, this verse, hymn to the perfection of wisdom, became first routine and then embodied. It subtly permeated me so that when we began offering a little more of a service at Appamata and chanting the Heart Sutra, I felt something was missing. So I longed for this verse. And so we brought it into our service and we now chant it daily. Maybe it will become clear why as we look at it a little more closely. So the first line is homage to the perfection of wisdom. And I wanna begin with the word homage. We use this term to venerate something or someone as greater than ourselves. It's different from honoring someone. So you might honor someone who's retiring after a long career or someone who's accomplished a goal or earned some award. But we pay homage as an act of reverence or awe and connection. It carries with it a connotation of devotion and respect. Usually we see this word applied for some exalted being or beings, God, a king, those who have sacrificed their lives in war. We're inspired to serve them, or we stand in awe of their mysterious attainments or their status. The awe we feel may be shot through with terror or with vast, boundless love. So awe goes both ways, right? In that sense, we may think of homage as establishing a power-up, power-down position or relation. <clears throat> we bow down to beings we view as superior to ourselves and acknowledge our own humble status before them. But homage is not just a feeling of reverence or awe or inferiority or, or, the, uh, on the, uh, or the enacting of it with some gesture as kneeling before a king. It suggests commitment in action in support of those we revere, in surrendering our ego. We, can, we are also placing ourselves in service of something much larger and vastly more powerful than our puny selves. So the term homage is not much used these days. In our individualistic democratic culture, there are few heads that we place above our own and little sense of sacrificing our self-interests in the service of another. And so we have lost a certain way of standing in relation to something or someone beyond our own ordinary lives. 
Of course, this is a generalization. It reflects a general tendency in our society, not the particulars of individual lives. So you can um, take a moment and just reflect uh, a little bit about this term homage and whether there's something that you pay homage to in your own life uh, that you revere or consider uh, beyond you and where you find yourself struck by wonder and awe. How this is, how that, how you reflect that in your thoughts or words or actions. And that's the beginning, the very first word of this verse. What do, what would I pay homage to? What is worthy of homage in my view? It's, a, it's an interesting question because it's, it seems in a way almost like an old-fashioned word. <clears throat> Here in the very first line of this verse, we offer homage to a capacity or quality that can be found in anyone, that can be cultivated and perfected by anyone. It's not dependent on a high IQ or an advanced education. It can be found equally in the wealthy and the poor, in a person with many years of life experience and in a child. It's not dependent on our faculties. It can be found in the blind, the deaf, the paralyzed. We've all experienced moments of wisdom coming from some unexpected source, right? A grocery clerk, another harried mother, a chance encounter with someone. We find ourselves drawn to those we sense are steeped in wisdom even when they have little to say. It's true that over a long life, a person can, through intelligent use of experience, grow more wise, especially about worldly matters. But it is also true that a different person might only strengthen their conditioning <clears throat> and deepen in ignorance, learning little and not gaining in wisdom. Time's passage is no guarantee of the development of true wisdom. When we're in a crisis, psychological, medical, ecological, societal, the quality we most long for and need is wisdom. It surpasses even skillful means in times of trouble or struggle or distress, because there's little help from skills and resources if they're not used wisely. They can be squandered or misused. Wisdom must be embodied and enacted. It is not a quality of a person, but an expression in activity, in thought, words, or actions. Even a person we think of as wise can make many mistakes, can do something unwise. Wisdom unfolds in particular situations where it seems most natural and often almost obvious. It offers creative possibilities or insights reassurance, connection, and care. But even this doesn't fully describe it, does it? So maybe you can think of something more worthy of homage in our lives and in our current predicaments than wisdom, but I can't. Uh, even a loving God cannot help us if we're not wise. In Zen, we pay homage to the Buddha as the embodied expression of the perfection of wisdom, wisdom that can be fostered in each of us not because of the Buddha as a person. 
Yet we realize too that the Buddha we venerate is a kind of construction based on all we've read or heard and kind of cobbled together from bits and pieces of our understanding of what Buddha means. We pay homage to our Zen ancestors, not for their awe-inspiring feats or exalted status, but because as human beings just like ourselves, they have carefully transmitted the wisdom of the teachings, warm hand to warm hand, right down to us, and trusting them to our own warm hands. So again, we're aware that these stories are not literal historical facts, but constructs that serve to encourage and inspire us on our own path, as they have done for practitioners for a thousand years. In our tradition of Zen, wisdom is recognizing the emptiness from which all of our experience is constructed through our senses, including our mind. So the verse expresses homage to the perfection of wisdom. So this term, perfection of wisdom, is the translation of prajna paramita. To me, it carries two meanings, this term perfection. One sense is that true wisdom is perfect in that there's nothing further to be added to it, nothing extra in it, and no way it could be improved or made better. The second sense is as an encouragement. Wisdom is something we can be continually perfecting in ourselves. It is not a fixed quality in us for better or worse. It is unlimited. It is always possible to cultivate and expand it. Our Zen practice and spiritual friendships are one sure method for this cultivation. So as Joel pointed out, Prajnaparamita is one of six paramitas, capacities that should be cultivated as taught by the Buddha. They include generosity, morality or ethical conduct, patience, energy, concentration, and wisdom. Wisdom is the ultimate paramita and the necessary quality for the other five. Each cannot be fully realized without wisdom. Without wisdom, generosity can actually be harming. Without wisdom, morality can become rigid and judgmental. Without wisdom, patience can become apathy and tolerance of harm. Without wisdom, energy can simply be squandered in superficial ways. Without wisdom, concentration is focused on the wrong things. So the perfection of wisdom is of paramount importance. These paramitas are the perfect complement to the precepts, and we teach them that way. The precepts provide wisdom about what to refrain from, the paramitas about what to cultivate and foster in ourselves and in our society. As Joel mentioned yesterday, the Buddha began teaching his son Rahula about the cultivation of wisdom when he was about seven. His teaching was simple, as you might give to a child, and still profound, profound enough for us to keep learning it. Before you speak or act, consider what is wholesome, wise, and kind. In the middle of speaking or acting, again reflect on whether it is wholesome, wise, and kind. And afterwards, reflect on whether what you said or did was wholesome, wise, and kind. In this way, he taught, you will grow in wisdom. 
But the Prajnaparamita in Buddhism goes far beyond a personal aspiration for wisdom and its cultivation. It's at the heart of our Mahayana teachings and tradition, and it represents a social revolution. The Prajnaparamita sutras are vast and rich. The Heart Sutra we chant daily is just the most condensed and distilled of these. There are Prajnaparamita sutras of 25,000 lines, 8,000 lines, and so on. This particular verse, the hymn to the perfection of wisdom, as Joel said, can be found in chapter seven of the Prajnaparamita in 8,000 lines. It was adapted for use in Zen services by Linda Ruth Cutts, who explains in an email message to our Zen teachers group, the hymn to the perfection of wisdom was adapted from the hymn in the Astasha Hasha Rika Prajna Paramita Sutra in 8,000 lines, the Kanzi translation. She says, when I was at Tassajara, I was reading that sutra over and over and found this, and we shortened it with the help of Steve Weintraub, who I think was the Eno at the time. That was in 1975 or 76. And that's how it came to be in its present form and used in our service. So Joel read the full version from that excerpt uh, yesterday, and you can see how it's been sort of compressed and, uh, and refined for use and service. But the cultivation of the perfection of wisdom is not only for individuals. It's also the work of our spiritual communities, guiding our collective decisions, conversations, practices, and learning together, in coming together in person and online, and chanting this verse, we affirm our commitment to supporting the perfection of wisdom both in ourselves and in our Sangha. In fact, we find that the diverse perspectives we bring when we come together deepen our shared wisdom and enrich it. We can see this in inquiry, in depth and practice, in Young Zen, in the Sunday program, even in the informal discussions after morning zazen on Zoom. There are wise communities and unwise communities. So there is much work to do in cultivating the perfection of wisdom, both at the personal level and at the community level. And it's interesting to me that even in this long Prajnaparamita of 8,000 lines, the perfection of wisdom is personified as female. It's a little bit of a counterweight to the overwhelmingly male um, representations in uh, the tradition. So that's the first line of the perfection of wisdom. <clears throat> it fully encapsulates not only the rest of the verse, but the whole vast Prajnaparamita literature. It's all there in that very first line, homage to the perfection of wisdom. We also see in this verse the repeated play of light and darkness which will also be a feature of the merging of difference and unity, um, one of the chants that we have in our chant book. In line two, the perfection of wisdom gives light. In line four, she's a source of light. In the line six, she removes darkness. Then she brings light so that all fear and distress may be forsaken. I love the idea of forsaking fear and distress. I remember Tara Brock talking, you know, about how we are loyal to our suffering. We're loyal to our suffering. So this causes us to be disloyal to our suffering, 
the forsaking of fear and distress, and she disperses the gloom and darkness of delusion. So the light she brings is not just illumination, it has these special important functions. <clears throat> Even beyond this, she herself is an organ of vision. That is, she perceives light, sees and apprehends things as they are. In this way, she has a clear knowledge of the own being of all dharmas, for she does not stray away from them. Here I think the term dharma suggests both meanings of this word. There are two distinct meanings of this word. The dharma as phenomena arising, aspects of reality, and the dharma as the teachings of the Buddha. She does not stray away from them. She's not distracted by a string of tweets or online rabbit holes, a daydream, regret for the past, speculation about the future, by shame or blame, by the words or actions of others, by passing sensations or emotions, by to-do lists and calendars. She never loses sight of absolute reality and the teachings that illuminate it. This kind of wisdom is the complete embodiment of relaxed, absolute attention like a cat lying in front of a mouse hole, right? The completely relaxed, completely attentive. The Buddhas are Buddhas because they are expressions of perfect wisdom. In that sense, the perfection of wisdom is considered the mother of the Buddhas. She brings them into being and her DNA is running through them. So it is not merely the Buddha but the perfection of wisdom of the Buddha that sets in motion the wheel of Dharma. So this symbol of the wheel goes very far back in Indian culture, long before the Buddha's time. It was being used in many, many ways. I kind of imagine this symbology is the vestige of humans' earliest development of the wheel and the profound change that technology wrought in earlier societies. So the wheel became this symbol. The symbol is, is called in, uh, in India is called chakra. And when used in Buddhism as, in, as the Dharma chakra, the wheel of Dharma, it represents wisdom, knowledge, insight, and the cyclical nature of life, the wheel of samsara. <clears throat> the first turning of the Dharma wheel occurred when the Buddha gave his first teaching to the five mendicants who had been traveling with him. So in iconography, you can often see images of the Buddha with the wheel symbol on his hands or on his feet. And before there began to be statues of the Buddha, the Buddha was represented by footprints embedded with the wheel emblem. Of course, the mandala used in some Buddhist practices and found in traditional Buddhist art in so many beautiful variations represents the wheel of Dharma. So this is the hymn to the perfection of wisdom, the lovely, the holy. This is uh, our little verse that we chant before the Heart Sutra, which is gonna open out into the emptiness of all things. And I wanted to read you, there's a beautiful expression of this in Lex Hickson's book, The Mother of the Buddhas, which is a reflection on this Prajnaparamita Sutra, um, his poetic take on it. And I love the way he's expressed it um, it's so, the language is so, what he calls uh, cosmopoetry. That's uh, really, really beautiful. So, the, as uh, Joel pointed out, 
the Prajnaparamita Sutras unfold as a dialogue among the uh, Buddha and Subhuti, or the Buddha and Chariputra, the Buddha and other disciples. So it's, uh, it's usually in dialogic form. Um, Chariputra. This perfection of wisdom, O radiant Lord, is none other than the total awakeness, which is omniscience. Lord Buddha, so it is, noble Shariputra, precisely as you say. So this is interesting, total awakeness, total awakeness. The perfection of wisdom shines forth, Shariputra says, as a sublime light. O Buddha nature, I sing this spontaneous hymn of light to praise Mother Prajnaparamita. She is worthy of infinite praise. She is utterly unstained because nothing in this insubstantial world can possibly stain her. She is an ever-flowing fountain of incomparable light, and from every conscious being on every plane, she removes the faintest trace of illusory darkness. She leads living beings into her clear light from the blindness and obscurity caused by moral and spiritual impurity, as well as by partial or distorted views of reality. In her alone can we find true refuge. <clears throat> Sublime and excellent are her revelations through all persons of wisdom. She inspires and guides us to seek the safety and certainty of the bright wings of enlightenment. She pours forth her nectar of healing light to those who have made themselves appear blind. She provides the illumination through which all fear and despair can be utterly renounced. She manifests the five mystic eyes of wisdom, the vision and penetration of each one more exalted than the last. She clearly and constantly points out the path of wisdom to every conscious being with the direct pointing that is her transmission and empowerment. She is an infinite eye of wisdom. She dissipates entirely the mental gloom of delusion. She does not manipulate any structures of relativity. Simply by shining spontaneously, she guides to the spiritual path whatever beings have wandered into dangerous, negative, self-centered ways. Mother Prajnaparamita is total awakeness. She never substantially creates any limited structure because she experiences none of the tendencies of living beings to grasp, project, or conceptualize. Neither does she substantially dismantle or destroy any limited structure, for she encounters no solid limits. She is the perfect wisdom which never comes into being and therefore never goes out of being. She is known as the Great Mother by those spiritually mature beings who dedicate their mind streams to the liberation and full enlightenment of all that lives. She is not marked by fundamental characteristics. This absence of characteristics is her transcendent mystic motherhood, the radiant blackness of her womb. She is the universal benefactress who presents as a sublime offering to truth, the limitless jewel of all Buddha qualities, the miraculous gem which generates the 10 inconceivable powers of a Buddha to elevate living beings into consciousness of their innate Buddha nature. She can never be defeated in any way on any level. 
She lovingly protects vulnerable conscious beings who cannot protect themselves, gradually generating in them unshakable fearlessness and diamond confidence. She is the perfect antidote to the poisonous view which affirms the cycle of birth and death to be a substantial reality. She is the clear knowledge of the open and transparent mode of being shared by all structures and events. Her transcendent knowing never wavers. She is the perfect wisdom who gives birthless birth to all Buddhas. And through these sublimely awakened ones, it is Mother Prajnaparamita alone who turns the wheel of true teaching. Lord Buddha, precisely so, beloved Shariputra. So I thought that was so beautiful and so poetic. Um, one of my very favorite chapters in this book, which I highly recommend. So um, I think we have maybe just a few minutes if anyone has any questions um, they'd like to ask or reflections that they'd like to, that they would like to share. Yeah, Joan. Like Darcy, uh, I'm curious about the clear knowledge of the own being of all dharmas. So the, I would sort of describe that as the reality of all phenomena. So the reality of all phenomena is recognizing that all phenomena are impermanent, right? empty of substantial separate independent being and bound up with suffering because all uh, dharmas can be subject to our grasping right and clinging which is the source of suffering so does that make sense to you yes it does yeah um seeing reality as it is life as it is yeah joel just that I think that that explanation that you just gave unifies this with the language in the Heart Sutra, which says something like, there is no own being to all dharmas. That's right. It's insubstantial. So it's the, the wisdom that recognizes that and doesn't um, grasp uh, under the misapprehension of substantiality. Yeah. Could I ask you to read again the part from the Hickson book that you were just reading from? I, when you, when at the beginning of what you were reading, I was thinking, oh, well, this is very nice metaphysics. What's this got to do with me? But then toward the end, there's a part about how access to this wisdom, I, I'm, I'm thinking of it as access rather than a personification, but access to this wisdom within ourselves gives a kind of confidence and a kind of clarity. Yes. Uh -huh. that, and, and you know, how, how can be, how can this be available to us in our lives? That's what I want to know. And I, and I think that part speaks to that. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, which, so, um, let's see, I'm looking to see where, uh, it was about two thirds of the way through what you read, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, let's see.
Oh, she lovingly protects vulnerable conscious beings who cannot protect themselves, gradually generating in them unshakable fearlessness and diamond confidence. Is that the part that you were thinking about? Yeah. She's, she lovingly protects vulnerable conscious beings who cannot protect themselves, gradually generating in them unshakable fearlessness and diamond confidence. Just hearing, hearing that, I'm just having a sense. Yes, I do have, I do have, I have had glimpses of access to that quality. That's right. That is, that has given me more confidence and more, um, kind of a courage as well. Oh. That, and and, and I'm, I'm reminded that this is also part of the description of Jizo. Yes, From the Jizo ceremony and, and the Jizo is has a has a fearless optimism and confidence, right? That's right. So and that optimism isn't an attachment to some outcome. Mm -hmm. It's a general um, orientation that everything is workable. Everything can be met. So, yeah. So workable is, is a tricky word. It's, it doesn't necessarily mean so, solvable. That's right. And what, what I really think of it as, if you think of the four divine abodes, right? The uh, uh, sort of benevolence, loving kindness, benevolence, um, and compassion, and empathetic joy, and equanimity, there's no circumstance in which you cannot um, face the circumstance with that from those abodes, right? So it doesn't mean, uh, oh, I will know what to do. It means I can meet, um, you know, in Becky's terms, I can meet this pain from that place, right? Or uh, I can meet the struggles of my daughter from that place. I'm infinitely more helpful coming from that place than from my conditioned reactivity, right? So the sense that it's workable, maybe you know, better way to think about it is it's meetable from this place, from the place of uh, wisdom and compassion, basically. We don't always have access to that place. <laughs> you know, we get caught up. You know, that's the definition of conditioning, really. Yeah, Maria. Do, do I have to unmute you? Hold on. There we go. Yeah, I was. Uh, I've been sitting with this line in um, in morning zazen for quite some time, and it's um, unstained. The entire world cannot stain her. And I noticed that when you read first read through the verse, you skipped that line, and I was like, oh, I was like, I felt like a real. Did I miss that? <laughs> yeah, I only noticed because it's been my. Absolute yes. line, and it just keeps coming up, and it's that something about unstained. You know, is, is it is it referring to kind of you know without all the conditioning, the world cannot bump into her and stain her, and and because that's the kind of way I'm sort of seeing it when I'm sitting with it. Right. Well, true wisdom is undefiled, right? Um, so it's just. Um, 
uh, that perfect clarity you can't really you, you know you throw a lot of mud at it but you can't really you can't really defile it so it's, that's what we're all aiming for isn't it really <laughs> well i i keep thinking if there's something better to aim for but i can't think of anything better to aim for actually you know no, it kind of sums everything up the whole verse and the whole practice for me that yeah. one line kind of really brings it home it's not about the purity of persons. It's really about the purity of that perfect wisdom. That there's really, there's no way to distort it or, you know, you know this in your own experience. It can't, people can impugn it, but it's just a reflection of their own conditioning. It has nothing, no impact on the value and import of true wisdom. Yeah. So yeah, that's a, that is a great one, and I'm I, I can't believe I skipped over that part because that's important to me too. Because it's not you become this pure person who is unstainable. It's really about that quality of perfect wisdom can't really be defiled. And it's kind of like it cannot stain her. So it's kind of it can still get you, but it doesn't stay. It doesn't stain. It doesn't right. leave the mark. The mark goes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly rather than the clinging holding right onto it right that's absolutely true so i see we're at the end of our time and you need a lunch break and um, we'll come back again at 1 30 um, and i hope you uh, have a refreshing a lovely meal a refreshing refreshing time and uh, and we'll see you back here again at 1 30. okay